now, the Blaze Radio Network presents 40 Acres and a Fool. Here's your host, Cam Edwards. Welcome to another edition of 40 Acres and a Fool. I'm your host, Cam Edwards. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, coming up on the program this week, we'll check in around the farm. We'll talk about uh, we'll talk about trouble. As a matter of fact, the uh, name of a book that I picked up uh, talking about Virginia in the Great Depression kind of seems like we're I don't know if we're headed towards a uh, another Great Depression, but it just seems like there's uncertainty and instability in the air uh, and in the news around the world. We'll get to some of your thoughts. The email address, as always, is 40acrefool at gmail.com. Love to hear how things are going in your neck of the woods and uh, your garden as well. I'm coming to you from the kitchen table this evening. By the way, I was really hoping to be outside, but it is gross. Uh, It is threatening rain. It is now dark. And uh, we have been just nasty with mosquitoes over the past couple of weeks. So every time I venture outside, I end up with at least two or three bites in some very uncomfortable places. So I'm doing the program from uh, inside this evening. Did get a chance to spend a little bit of time outside, however, uh, after uh, Sloppy Joe's on this uh, meaty Wednesday evening as I uh, record the 40 Acres in a Fool podcast. Uh, After some Sloppy Joe's for dinner, Miss E and I headed over to a friend's house, our uh, youngest son, spending the night over there as we were dropping off some clothes. Got a chance to check out uh, another person's garden for the first time this summer and I was um, I was a little envious to be quite honest with you it's really really well done our friends today a great job they uh, have already cleared out their zucchini uh, and their squash at least from their spring planting they'll uh, they've got some more going for the fall uh, their tomatoes are uh, big and tall a lot of green tomatoes but uh, not too many red tomatoes for them yet. Uh, They are, however, having a lot of luck with their cucumbers. In fact, uh, they brought over some cucumbers, so I appreciate that uh, very much. They've got their pumpkins going. Their corn is nice and tall. They're growing some things that uh, that we're not growing, so it's cool to check it out and uh, check out some of the uh, the chickens that uh, they have free-ranging. They say they don't have a problem with foxes or coyotes. I don't understand it because we certainly do, and they don't live that far away from us, but apparently the... uh, the uh, the predators don't know that there's some free meals around uh, in another neck of the woods. Actually, I, w- things are okay on that front. The um, the fence that uh, we put up to contain the chickens and to keep out the coyotes and the foxes seems to be working. We did have a problem with our chickens uh, flying up and over the top of the fence and getting out, which was... Uh, problematic, uh, but we actually ran some twine uh, to make sort of a, a roof uh, or the facsimile thereof, and the chickens so far have not gotten out. We did see a, a fox. Uh, Miss E saw a fox the other morning, about mid-morning. The chickens started raising their alarm, and uh, she looked out. She saw a fox on the far side of the uh, fenced area, so she ran out with her gun, ran out with uh, Bullet the Wonder Dog, uh, unfortunately the uh, fox took off before she could get a shot and before, I'm not even sure Bullet would have gone after him to be quite honest with you, but, uh, before Bullet ran after the fox, but no chickens were harmed and that's a good thing. So we, uh, we continue to have all of our chickens intact on the farm, uh, and our garden is doing okay. 
I would say. It's been a very, very wet summer here. Apologies if you're listening on the West Coast and uh, in California, but uh, we have just been deluged with rain, and as a result, uh, about a half of our tomato plants are doing fairly poorly. Uh, the leaves are dying from the bottom up. Uh, it's a sign that they're getting just way too much water. Uh, heard from some other friends around here who are suffering through the same problem. Every plant still has some fruit on it at this point, uh, but some are definitely doing better than others. The the uh, tomatoes that are in the sunnier part of the garden where things have been able to dry out a little bit more, they are much more robust uh, than some of the tomatoes that we planted in, in an area that gets a little bit more shade. So we're starting to get some of these smaller tomatoes. I mentioned the bloody butchers have been coming in and uh, uh, dribs and drabs over the last few weeks or so. Have a lot of big Amish slicers that are still, I mean, they're, they're big, but they're still green. They haven't turned gold yet. Uh, still waiting on, again, all of this fruit that's there to just ripen so we can eat it. Unfortunately, uh, that's not happening with the tomatoes. We have pulled off uh, our first cucumbers. Actually, I did that uh, a Tuesday of this week. We uh, got a, uh, I think it's a Boston pickling, which is just sort of the standard uh, green pickling cucumber. And then we uh, also are growing dragon's eggs, which are these really pale, uh, almost, again, egg-shaped, but uh, bigger than a chicken egg. Think like a softball size. Think an ostrich egg, almost. Uh, sized cucumber, maybe not an ostrich egg, but bigger than a duck egg. Uh, anyway, a, a very creamy uh, kind of cucumber, uh, not a lot of seeds to it, uh, and they're doing great, which is, I'm pleased, I'm kind of surprised. Last year we didn't have much luck with the cucumbers. Something came along and ate uh, about half of the cucumbers that we had planted, along with uh, all of the soybeans that we had planted before they could even start to blossom. So I, I am pleased that we're... Uh, uh, getting such a robust crop, I'm just I, I'm not sure what we are doing differently as opposed to last year where we got hardly any. Same with our carrots. Actually, I know what we did wrong with the carrots last year. We planted the carrots too close to the pumpkins and the squash, and the uh, the vines overtook our carrots. This year we did not make that mistake, and uh, this year we've been uh, snacking on carrots for like the last two weeks. We still have we've cleared out uh, two of the four beds that we planted. Uh, so the cosmic purples have all been pulled up. The uh, ox hearts, I think, have all been pulled up. We've got a, I think, a bed left, a bed and a half left with uh, just some various uh, seeds that are in there. I think it's a, a, a quote unquote artisan mix, so all different kinds of colors. Uh, and we're still pulling those up. Uh, the beets are all gone and taken care of. Uh, we'll be planting the fall beets. Probably in the next week or so, starting to plant our fall peas and our beans. So it's uh, again, it's a it's it's still a very busy time of year. The uh, the garden is very lush and overgrown. It is a constant battle to take care of the weeds. And I was at my friend's garden tonight, and I'm looking around, and there are hardly any weeds. And I was I was jealous, quite frankly, and envious, and uh, amazed at how good her garden looks. And I was a little inspired to. Uh, do a better job with mine. Unfortunately, I'm going to be away this coming weekend. Um, I am getting to do something fun, however, going up to Poughkeepsie, New York, and the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association's annual meeting. So uh, if you hear this podcast before July the 12th and you are in the Poughkeepsie area or not too far away, come down to the annual meeting of the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association. I would love to see you. Uh, And if not, hopefully I'll get to see you there next year. 
Meanwhile, the pigs are good, the goats are good, the chickens, again, as I mentioned, are all alive. Bullet the Wonder Dog is asleep at my feet uh, as uh, we record the podcast. We're going to step away for just a moment or two, but when we come back, NBC News, USA Today, recently taking a look at the rural-urban divide. We'll take a look at their findings. The media is just so divisive, aren't they? They're always looking to pit one side against the other. It's just kind of sad. Can't we all just get along? I think we can, especially here on uh, 40 Acres and a Fool from the Blaze Radio Network. Stick around. We'll be right back right after this. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. And they said the men holding the signs reading stuff like Judaism prohibits homosexuality had a logo of the Jewish Political Action Committee said the problem was the guys were obviously Hispanic and they're very confused. So they did some investigating and it turns out the guys holding the signs were paid Mexican day laborers to protest. The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday mornings 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to 40 Acres and a Fool. Cam Edwards with you. Bullet is uh, now awake and is staring at me as I begin our second segment here. Uh, NBC News and USA Today recently uh, had a, uh, a, I think, sort of a joint look at uh, the rural-urban divide as uh, USA Today's On Politics's David Jackson put it, for all of the political divides in America, male, female, black, white, and all the rest, one of the oldest remains one of the most persistent. Urban versus rural. The different outlooks of city dwellers and country folks show up again on three modern issues that are dominated the headlines, according to NBC News Wall Street Journal polling data, gay marriage, free trade, and President Obama's Healthcare law. Uh, and then they talk about uh, what a 15% difference between city residents and rural residents uh, on the uh, Supreme Court's gay marriage decision. Uh, healthcare, 57% of city folk, as uh, the On Politics blog puts it, believe the new healthcare law is working well. Among rural residents, 63% want the law overhauled or eliminated. Uh, the ongoing urban-rural divide is also reflected in the political parties, NBC News notes. Bottom line, they say, New York City, Chicago, and Los Angeles were thrilled by last week's news. Jamestown, New York, Litchfield, Illinois, and Redding, California probably weren't as much. Nope. By the way, uh, not many people would hold up New York City, Chicago, Los Angeles as uh, particularly uh, wonderful places to live, Right. Uh, Los Angeles actually things seem to be going the wrong way. Uh, violent crime, property crime up for the first time in 10 years. Chicago, uh, it seems every day you've got uh, more and more awful headlines about the violence there. New York City starting to resemble the uh, New York City of the 1970s. So, uh, first of all, who really cares uh, if the people in these uh, cities are particularly thrilled about uh, any one thing or another? I'm, I'm, I'm fairly convinced that... Uh, just because you live in New York City, Los Angeles, or uh, Chicago, that doesn't make you a genius, and it certainly doesn't uh, make you right. You know, when you look at some of these issues, healthcare, for instance, um, there's a really good reason why a lot of rural residents 
uh, are, are opposed to the o Obamacare uh, laws, it's been disastrous for rural health care. Uh, hospitals in rural areas are shutting down uh, all over the country. It is becoming more and more difficult to find a doctor uh, in uh, rural areas. I've, I've seen this myself just with our own family. It's uh, not a lot of choices. And again, part of that is because you live in a rural area, but um, it has become more difficult over time. Your choices have become more limited over time. The uh, poll also talks about the political differences uh, in uh, urban and rural areas. They say, uh, according to their findings, 55% uh, of urban residents uh, identify as Democrat, whereas just 30%, 31% of our rural respondents are Democrats. Now, I, I, I'm not sure, again, how they uh, divvied up the country into uh, urban and rural. Uh, I don't know where they put the suburbs. Actually, they did poll the suburbs, but because the difference between the suburban results and the rural results aren't all that different, uh, it's sort of in the middle, <laughs> as you might expect. The, uh, the suburban vote on many of these issues not the same as the uh, urban vote, not the same as the rural vote, but somewhere in between. Uh, yeah, they just sort of discarded the uh, suburban vote, even though th the suburban vote makes up a uh, a, a huge portion uh, of the electorate. Because again, let's let's pit the uh, the city versus rural America. And honestly, you know, again, I, I don't think that uh, most of us live our lives. Whether we live in the city, the suburbs, or the country, I don't think most of us live our lives thinking uh, in terms of it's us versus them, the city folk uh, versus the rural folk. E even when you talk about, uh, I mean, actually, I will say, maybe when it comes to the gun laws, maybe that's the, the one area where we talk about, you know, the New York City-style gun laws, the Chicago-style gun laws, the uh, D.C.-style gun laws, but... In most of those cases, again, what we're talking about are laws that infringe uh, on our personal liberty, right? Those of us, uh, whether we live in, and certainly, again, the opposition is not only to be found in our rural areas. There are a lot of uh, suburban dwellers. There are actually a lot of folks who live in the cities uh, who want more of their gun rights as well. That's why, I again, I'm... I'm just not a big fan of setting up these uh, sort of divisive storylines. I mean, even that uh, talking point about, well, only 31% of rural respondents were Democrats. Okay, but that's still nearly a third of rural residents. By the way, that doesn't make them uh, a flaming liberal or a uh, quote-unquote progressive, even if they're a registered Democrat. But, you know, 31% is 31%. That's, that's not an insubstantial number. What I have found living in a rural area uh, is that there actually is, I think, more diversity than the uh, community that I lived in in Northern Virginia, which um, was, again, generally speaking, fairly homogenous. A lot of the people, most of the people perhaps, uh, either were active duty military or they were veterans. Uh, most of them had a job that connected them to the government in some form or fashion. 
They may not have worked uh, directly for the government, but they may have worked as a contractor. Uh, again, they may have worked in the military. They may have had a, uh, a job uh, that would not have been around had it not been for a government uh, contract or a government program, even if they were not uh, themselves a government contractor. Around here, uh, it's a lot more diverse, uh, oddly enough. Now, again, there aren't as many people, so... I know my local veterinarian. I know my local sheriff. Uh, I know a lot of the farmers around here. I know auto mechanics. I know produce managers at grocery stores. I know waitresses. I, you know, again, you just know a lot of different types of people, uh, or at least that's been my experience. And no, not all of us uh, think alike. I know a lot of conservatarians. I know a lot of people who are very social conservative, uh, socially conservative. I know a few people who are, let's say, liberal conservatives. They're not quite conservatarians. Uh, they're 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 almost the liberal version of that. And in some cases, I think they might even be conservatarian, but they they run with the crowd, in which you know it would be really improper to actually come out as a conservatarian. So they're, they're liberal conservatives. Uh, political ideas that are sort of all over the map. Uh, religious, uh, different religious faiths. Uh, certainly uh, different uh, socioeconomic backgrounds. Uh, uh, black and white and, uh, uh, quite frankly, uh, a growing number of mixed-race families, uh, even in rural Virginia, which might surprise some people. This, this has been my experience in rural America, that it is far from homogenous, that it is a, a very diverse place, and one, again, that is not frankly interested in division, one that seems much more interested in uh, a community. Doesn't mean you're in each other's faces all the time, but it means that you are there to help each other out. You're not interested in tearing each other apart. You're interested in uh, helping to build each other up and to build up the community at the same time. But you can see why that might be a foreign concept to uh, many members of the mainstream media in this day and age. All right, listen, we have to uh, take a time out. Honestly, I have to... Uh, I have to go walk my dogs. When we come back here on 40 Acres in a Fool, I'm going to talk about a, a book that I picked up uh, in Charlottesville over the Independence Day holiday. It's called Talk About Trouble, a New Deal Portrait of Virginians in the Great Depression. Doesn't that sound exciting? No, I promise. It actually is. It's really, really fascinating. Really, trust me. Stick around. We'll be right back with more 40 Acres in a Fool from the Blaze Radio Network. This is 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton. You probably have this in the back of your mind as well, even if you're somebody who believes in secure border. If you don't buy into all this media stuff, there is probably a part of you that could at least recite the talking points. That's successful propaganda when it exists in your brain without you even knowing it. And you say, well, uh, this is immigrant, illegal immigrant, illegal alien, actually. See, I just did it. I was not even intending to do that. Buck Sexton. Weekdays, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards returns now on the Blaze Radio Network. And this edition of 40 Acres and a Fool is brought to you by the letter B, as in 
blueberries because our blueberries are uh, really busting out all over the place right now. We've been freezing some blueberries. We have probably three or four pints right now just uh, in the refrigerator. Need to make some jam. We have many, many more blueberries to pick on the bushes. Did not get out there this evening, so uh, that is another chore that awaits me. Also uh, brought to you by the letter B because of bourbon. Actually, tonight it's just whiskey, so Warhorn whiskey brewed right here in uh, Virginia, as a matter of fact. Uh, in uh, a part of Virginia, uh, up in the, uh, the Appalachian uh, region, and that's the uh, subject of a, a lot of stories from this book that I picked up uh, called Talk About Trouble, A New Deal Portrait of Virginians in the Great Depression. Made it up to Charlottesville on Independence Day weekend. I, I did not make it to Monticello. I figured it would just be uh, a little crowded. Although, uh, who knows, maybe uh, maybe Jefferson is too problematic uh, to actually visit anymore. Anyway, we did go to some of the used bookstores in Charlottesville, which is always one of my favorite things to do, and I always find these sort of hidden, esoteric, just random books. And this was one of them. It's a, uh, it's a big, thick coffee table book, uh, A New Deal Portrait of Virginians in the Great Depression. So what, what this book is is basically uh, a, a compilation of a lot of the interviews that were done during the Great Depression. The uh, Works Project Administration, you know, had uh, a lot of, I don't want to call it make work, but that's kind of what it was in a lot of respects. It was it was make work. And one of the programs that uh, they made work for was the uh, the, the writers program. Uh, and so people were sent out across the country at the federal level. A lot of states had similar programs. So you had uh, writers who were sent out across the states uh, to conduct interviews with uh, people, asking them about their lives, recording this information. And then nothing really was done with uh, a lot of this information. In the state of Virginia, apparently, uh, all of these interviews, which were conducted from like 1938 to 1941, ended up in some Indiana Jones-style warehouse somewhere where they just languished for uh, decades and decades until these uh, academics, uh, Nancy Martin Perdue and uh, Clarence L. Perdue Jr., uh, took the time to uh, put together this book, Talk About Trouble. And I, I was struck. I'm not through reading this book yet. Um, it's it's something that you can't, I don't think you could read nonstop. It's just, uh, it's not that type of book. Um, but I've been struck by a couple of the interviews that uh, I've read. A lot of these were conducted, you know, in the late 1930s, maybe uh, as late as 1940. Uh, talking with a lot of people in their late 70s and their 80s, maybe even close to 90 at their, at that time. Uh, and asking them all about their life, how they grew up uh, in rural Virginia in the 1870s, 1880s. And uh, just some really fascinating stories. There was a uh, somewhat younger guy, Charles Tucker, who was interviewed in uh, May of 1940 at the age of 59. Uh, he was born in Allegheny County, Virginia, which uh, again is uh, out in the western part of the state. He uh, started working as a kid, didn't really go to school, uh, lived with his uh, grandparents uh, from the time that he was a little bit older, uh, worked to basically help support them uh, until he finally decided that he uh, could be of more service that he had a job uh, away from the farm. Some of that off-farm income, even back in the 1930s, 
off-farm income, as it uh, turns out, was pretty important to a lot of farmers. So he went away, and he actually got a job on a farm. <laughs> said he didn't know how to work anywhere else then. He said, I was only paid 25 cents a week whenever I first started to work. He said, I worked at that price for a good while. Then they raised my wages to 50 cents a week. I worked at that for a spell. But when I got so I could do as much work as a man, I got 50 cents a day. I felt like a man then. 50 cents a day was the usual wage for a man, except in wheat and hay harvest. Then you got a dollar. He said, as I said before, I've always liked farming better than any other kind of work, and I still like it best. I worked and saved all I could of my wages. I always give my mother and my granddaddy part of my money, for they had took care of me when I couldn't take care of myself, and I felt like I wanted to do something in return. Charles Tucker... Uh, kept working. He said, uh, when I was around 22 years old, I got married. A girl I'd known all my life. Her name was Jane Wolf. We went to housekeeping on the mountain and lived there for several years. We had nine children, Charles Tucker said. It was doing fine when the children took diphtheria. And it was at this moment when I uh, really started to realize that, uh, you know, you can live in rural America and, and you can live in a house that uh, was dates back to the uh, time of the founding of this nation. But uh, you will never reconnect truly with uh, what it was like to live back then, uh, nor would you want to, I think. Charles Tucker described this. Again, think about this. Nine kids. First of all, nine kids. And you hear some of these uh, egg-headed uh, progressives say that, uh, you know, eh, well, they, just, they didn't get as attached to their children back then. I mean, they had so many of them, and children are just sort of seen as expendable. Yeah. I don't believe it. I think it, uh, it kind of flies in the face of human nature, and uh, that certainly wasn't the case with Charles Tucker. He said, we was far from a doctor, and it was in the dead of winter. I seen it was getting worse, and I got on my horse and rode off that mountain one awful cold night for Dr. Carter. He come and give medicine, and he told us it was diphtheria and how awful it was. We done everything he told us to do, but nothing done any good, and one night, two of the children died. We was alone there on that cold mountain. No way of letting anybody know until daylight. Everybody was afraid to come when they did hear it, and we had an awful time. I tell you, nobody knows what trouble is till they have to sit by, helpless to do a thing to help, and see their children die. We couldn't do a thing, only watch and wait. We had an awful time to get a coffin and to get the little bodies down off that mountain to the graveyard. The other children was all sick, too. They got better of the diphtheria, and then... Charles Tucker said, we took the flu. Now, the flu comes along every winter, but this wasn't just any winter. This was 1918. This was the Spanish flu that hit. And Charles Tucker said, my wife had it. All the children were sick. I was sick, too. He said, but I kept going about. One of our neighbors was awful bad off and sent for me. Our folks seemed to be better, and I got ready to go. 
one of the little boys wanted to go with me. I didn't want him to go, but he begged so hard that I consented, and he went with me. He had got over diphtheria, but he seemed weak-like. And after we went over there, he took the flu, and he died. And then his mother died next. I had four deaths in my family in less than a month, Charles Tucker said. I was stunned. Broke up. I didn't know which way to turn. And there were the six motherless children. He said, oh, nobody knows what death is until it comes like that and almost wipes out the whole family with a single stroke. Their mother had always taken care of the children, and then I had nobody to look to. But I determined to keep the kids together, and I did. It was hard going with a four-month-old baby to look out for. I had to get milk for him just anywhere I could. My cows was dry at that time. I stayed with the children as much as I could for three years. You know, again, it struck me as I'm reading this tale, this true story, this 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 man, Charles Tucker, who lived in Allegheny County, Virginia, that as I'm reading this litany of disaster that's worthy of the book of Job, that if this, if I were to hear this uh, come out of anybody's mouth today, it would likely be seen as a sort of parody, right? Some sort of snarky uh, recitation of the woes and the travails of uh, the people who had to live uh, in the olden days of yore, right? And it would be given with a sort of, again, a smug, smirky grin of, aren't we better than they were? We're better off than than they were. We are blessed to live in a uh, day and age in which we don't have to uh, really worry about uh, seeing, you know, uh, nearly half of our family wiped out by a devastating disease. That doesn't mean that uh, that isn't possible. Again, tragedies still strike us. I'm not saying we don't live in a day and age where there aren't tragedies, but uh, we are certainly better off than uh, Mr. Tucker and his family were 100 years ago. And, and, and we shouldn't be smug about that. We should be grateful for that. Charles Tucker eventually got married. Said I married a widow with two children, a boy and a girl. Said we got along fine and I had plenty of everything. I had a fine team of horses, several good cows, hogs and chickens and a good crop. He said we had uh, left the mountain sometime before I was living on Dr. Carter's farm then. We had a good show for being more prosperous when her daughter's husband was caught with bootleg whiskey and sent up for two years. His uh, second wife, Maggie, felt like she had to do something, had to go be with her daughter, you know, when her daughter's no-good husband had been sent off to the state pen, had to help take care of the kids, wanted to make sure that the uh, kids stayed on the straight and narrow. He said, I tried to persuade her not to go. I told her it'd be a waste of her time for them young'uns. We'd just do as they pleased anyhow. I couldn't do nothing to keep her from going. She washed up every single piece in the place and ironed them and put them in the dresser drawer, my shirts and everything. Charles Tucker said, little did I think that she would be gone all these years. I told her I would take the small children, her grandchildren, and take care of them if she would stay, but she couldn't bear to turn any of them away, and I couldn't take the whole family. For it was already public that some of the boys was into the same trouble and I wouldn't have it, so she went away. 
and it has turned out just as I thought it would. The oldest boys are as mean as their dad, and Maggie has no influence on them. And her daughter's husband has left since he got out of the pen and is living with another woman. And Maggie's left with a bag to hold. She still has two of the children, and all that she has to depend on is $6 a month that she gets, old age pension. One of the boys was in the CCC camp. Again, keep in mind, this is during the Great Depression, the uh, Civilian Conservation Corps. But he got tired and left, said he was tired of giving his money away and just walked out. Now he's nothing to do, and his grandma has him to feed what time he ain't loafing around somewhere. Again, uh, this is the true story of Charles Tucker interviewed in Allegheny County, Virginia in 1940. As I read this interview, I just kept thinking, man, I hope life turned around. I hope life got better for him. Sounds like Mr. Tucker's life again. I mean, it could be straight out of Job or maybe a uh, old-time country and western song. He said, after Maggie left me, I sold everything I had on the place. My team and cows and my chickens, most of my furniture. I went to living around with my children. It ain't satisfactory, but it's the best I can do. I never got no divorce. I've always hoped that Maggie would come back and we could make another start. I go to see her sometimes, and I send her groceries and anything I know she needs. I've never quit work. I rent land every year, and I raise a good crop. I only have one horse now. I just double-team with others that have one horse. I'm not happy, and I'm restless. I would like for my wife to come back, and we could spend our last days together. I'm not old. I'm only 59. I could make a living for her and would if she'd come back. I don't know if Maggie ever did come back, but uh, Charles Tucker said that he did have uh, one small comfort. There is he uh, pined for Maggie. He said, the only thing that takes my mind off my troubles is to get my gun and my dogs. And Charles Tucker would go hunting and he would try to take his mind off his troubles. It didn't seem to work. His interview concludes this way. She's had some hard times and is about up against it right now. She lives in an out-of-the-way place in a little old shack. She told me she almost froze there last winter. There are holes in the walls big enough to stick your arm through. The last time I asked her to come back, I told her I'd rent a farm and buy all the furniture we needed and the stock, too. I had one cow then and let her bring the two grandchildren with her, and I could take care of them all and be glad to do it. But she said, no, Charlie, I can't go back now. I ought to never have left your home. You was good to me, and have been good since I left, but I can't go back now and take these children. They would be a worry to you, as they have been to me. You was right. I have failed to make of them what I hoped. The two I have are good children yet, but when they get older... They may do like the others have done, but I'll have to stay on when they all leave me. I don't know what I'll do then. And Charlie Tucker told that interviewer, It all looks so foolish for us two old people to be living apart this way, when we could be so much happier together. You know, again, it's uh, easy, and sometimes uh, the progressives who despise our history 
don't really want us to know our history. Uh, want to portray those who lived before us as these sort of uh, simple-minded buffoons uh, who, who have nothing of value to teach us. They have uh, nothing, no wisdom that they've accrued because they were all worse than than we are. They're all flawed uh, in some way, right? So we, we should disregard uh, their stories and their experiences and, and the lives that they led. I think that's a... Uh, a truly tragic mistake to make, uh, and I think that too many of us are making that mistake. I mean, again, here's one man in a uh, out-of-the-way county in Virginia, didn't do anything famous, lived a life, average life, right? Farmer, his, in, his entire life almost, right? I mean, from the time that he was a kid. But he wasn't famous. He didn't, you know, nobody knows about Charles Tucker. Nobody has any reason to know about Charles Tucker. But here was a man who lived a full and rich life with, with peaks of joy and the depths of despair. And as uh, uh, many different uh, experiences, you know, I'm sure the dude was uh, unenlightened compared to uh, some of our more uh, progressive and enlightened souls these days, but it seems to me just reading that uh, a relatively brief interview with Charles Tucker, again, you you, you, you can't help but understand that uh, these voices, these individuals, and their experiences shouldn't be discarded uh, just because they have passed into the pages of history. All right, we have to step away for just another moment. When we come back here on this edition of 40 Acres and a Fool, we are going to check in with your thoughts. We've got a couple of emails to get to. The email address, as always, is 40acrefool at gmail.com, 40acrefool at gmail.com. We'll be right back with more 40 Acres and a Fool from the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Severin. Greece is a welfare state, literally. Greece is, is Newark, New Jersey. Greece has lived off other people's money for years. And one of the most brilliant quotes ever, which happens to apply here, it's the Iron Lady, Margaret Thatcher, who notably said, the problem with socialism is that eventually you run out of other people's money. Jay Severin. Weekdays, 2 to 5 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Thanks again for being a part of this edition of 40 Acres and a Fool. I'm your host, Cam Edwards, and it is time to check in with some of your thoughts. We'll start with a, an email from a first-time listener, uh, Andy, writing in. Uh, Andrea, actually says, uh, Cam, just finished listening to you for the first time. What an awakening. Firstly, every time I heard the promo for your podcast, I heard 40 acres in a pool. <laughs> Imagine my surprise, Andrea says, when I went to the Blazes on-demand menu and learned your show was 40 acres and a fool. Still, having found you, I decided to give a listen, was interested in you having to dump goat's milk, and uh, that's what prompted me to write. In 2013, 
I participated in a national writing workshop for teachers, Andrea says. Yes, I admit I've spent my life teaching, but I am now retired. By the way, Andrea, there's nothing you have to admit to. A, a good teacher, and you know this, a good teacher is one of the most valuable uh, uh, entities that, that we have in the society. We, we need good students, too, but uh, really, a, a, a good teacher is a, is a treasure. I am not anti-education. I am not anti-teaching by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Andrea says, During that workshop, I met an artist and an art teacher by the name of Jane Bergoli. In the variables of life in the 21st century, uh, Jane had divorced and moved with her two children to a section of Dartmouth, Massachusetts that was semi-rural. Jane had two kids, and as children will, they got to know all the neighbors in the area. That meant that they came to know the goat lady. <laughs> the goat lady, Andrea writes, was elderly, a widow, and surviving on a rundown farm that was near Jane's house. The children became good friends with the woman, and Jane got to meet her as a result of their friendship. The children convinced Jane that she needed to paint the goat lady, and eventually she did, not once, but many times. The area of South Dartmouth, where Jane lived abuts a very wealthy area called Padanarum, and is actually on the coastline of Buzzards Bay. Over the years, many who acquired wealth in dot-com and other adventures moved to the area and built large McMansions. Needless to say, they were appalled by the disarray and destitute uh, nature of the goat lady's property, feeling it cast a shadow on their newly acquired pulchritude. Fortunately, Andrea says, the local cultural society asked Jane to do a show of her paintings at the local library, and that is when the carpetbaggers learned the truth about the goat lady. The goat lady, Andrea says, and her husband would have been considered peasant stock back in the old world, but here in the United States, they were just common factory workers. Both would have loved nothing more than to have raised a family on their small farm, a farm they worked after they finished their work shifts in the factories of the nearby city, but such was not to be. As time went on, the woman became more and more crippled with arthritis. Finally, the doctor told her that she would have to give up her factory job because of the horrible crippling that her bones had undergone. He told her there was no medicine that he could prescribe, having tried all that was available on her. He said that there was no hope for her, and that she should retire and enjoy what little time she had left. When she tearfully asked if there was nothing else that she could try, he admitted that he had heard an old wives' tale of drinking goat milk, but didn't really think it would do any good. Andrea says, faced with so dour a future, the woman and her husband decided to at least try the old wives' cure. Her husband brought home a milking goat, and the effort began. She told Jane how much she cried from the pain caused by the effort to milk the goat, but she persevered. And gradually she noticed a lessening of the pain, and her life became so much better. She and her husband decided that perhaps this was their mission in life, to provide goat's milk to those suffering from the crippling effects of arthritis. By the time Jane and her children came to know her, her husband had passed away and she was carrying on alone. The local school bus driver and the mailman would help as they could, but the farm itself was falling into disrepair. Andrea says, When the Cultural Society sponsored the show of Jane's paintings, the newcomers learned the full story of the old woman who cared for the goats, and there was a sea swell of change in the attitudes of many in the area. Eventually, it was suggested that Jane write the story of the goat lady, and they used her oils to illustrate the book, in addition to further pen and ink sketches that Jane did. You can get the book on Amazon if you're interested in learning more. Andrea says, My main reason for writing is to beg you, 
not to pour out that goat milk, but to see that it gets to elderly citizens in your community. It truly can be a wonderful panacea for so many who suffer from arthritic pain. Even if only 50% of those who suffer see relief, it would be a life miracle. Andrea, that is wonderful. And I tell you what, uh, the next time we start milking, and we will start milking, uh, any extra milk that we get, I, I, I again, I don't know, you know, what kind of... Um, uh, rigamo we're going to have to run through to to try to provide this uh, goat milk to uh, elderly individuals, um, but we will we will make sure that we do that. We certainly live in a rural area, you know as well as I do. There is an aging population. Uh, Andrea says I'm writing you from my own forty plus acre Eden in the northeast kingdom of Vermont. It is my peaceful sanctuary in this world gone mad. Although many of these side hill farms here raise cows, both dairy and beef, goats, sheep, and horses. She says that Justin Morgan's horse was from this locale and served as the crossover animal between racehorse and plow horse, becoming the standard breed of trotting and pacing animals. Andrea raises trees, 48-plus acres of maple, evergreen, and various others. She says it's my place of healing and of peace, a place where I can watch the birds fledge their young, the hummingbirds assault my foxglove for nectar, and the butterflies enjoy a bacchanalia among the flowers that I have planted. It helps to put the chaos of the world in perspective and restore my sense of wonder. Shortly, she says, I shall return to the flatlands, as the native woodchucks refer to the southern part of New England, but I can deal with that once I have refreshed my soul in the wonders of these blessed mountains. These are the hills to which I lift up mine eyes, and from whence cometh my health. God bless you, your family, and all the critters of your forty acres. Too bad, Andrea says, you don't have a pool. It would make life after a hard day of farming so refreshing. Andrea, listen, I'll tell you what, getting a letter like yours, as wonderfully written as this was, as just so descriptive and colorful and welcoming as your letter was, that was very refreshing. So thank you so much for taking the time to write. And I do hope that you will continue to keep up uh, your correspondence. Um, as for the pool, we do have an above-ground pool. It's hot in the summertime in Virginia. Uh, we live out in the middle of nowhere. Our kids need to have something to do. So we do have an above-ground pool that the uh, the kids get to play in. And yes, on occasion, after those uh, very hot days, I too will take a dip and thank you. Uh, Ted also wrote in and said, uh, Cam, I've listened to Cam and Company for about two years now. And I enjoy the show. In the past two years, my wife and I bought an old house built in 1907, which makes it one of the older ones uh, in our area. We don't have 40 acres, just a nice city lot, but it's our little slice of land. Got to tell you, Ted, that sounds like my very first house, which was built, I think, in 1912, or 1912, 1912, and it was on a big city lot, and it was wonderful. Loved it. Ted says, since I my son was born, I've gotten into the idea of preparing for the realistic things in life, leaving alien invasions and the likes out. Uh, and part of this, Ted says, is growing our own food. Our first summer there, we just let whatever the previous owners had grow. But our first actual summer, my wife got prego, Ted says, and I didn't want her doing a lot of gardening in fear of losing our child. So we decided to go to the biblical route and let our garden rest for a year. Ted says, we have a bunch of apple trees that were here before, along with the kiwi cherries, peaches, and plum cots that we planted. Our humble garden is an experiment. We have corn, green beans, sunflowers, rhubarb, and cucumbers growing. And after my son goes to bed, I can be found on my hands and knees weeding. 
Ted says, uh, recently I've been looking into aquaponics and I would love to get into it, but I have to talk to my wife and talk her into it first. So in the meantime, I'm going to try next year on a shoestring budget to set up and grow salad mix in a hydroponic system. Uh, Ted says, sorry for the long message. No apologies, Ted. Not at all. I just wanted to say I like the podcasts uh, uh, that uh, of yours that I have heard. Keep up the good work. And uh, thank you, Ted, for writing. And I really do appreciate it. And best of luck to you, sir. Uh, it sounds like you've got a great thing going both in your garden and in your home. Congratulations to you and your wife and your uh, new son. Uh, raising vegetables and, you know, growing uh, things in a garden. It's a, it's a wonderful experiment. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of hard work, but uh, it, it, it doesn't even come close to the raising of a child and all of the incredible memories and experiences that uh, you're going to have along the way. So uh, enjoy it, Ted. Enjoy all of it. Uh, as for the uh, aquaponics, I, I got to tell you, I don't have any room to do any sort of aquaponics. Uh, really, that, that's just out of the question for me. So I wish you the very best of luck. I, I cannot give you any help or any hints. Um, I do like the idea of starting small, starting with a salad mix. Uh, and, you know, start small is always a good idea. Don't bite off more than you can chew when you're uh, starting out and you're experimenting with these, these things, whether it's uh, a garden plot in the backyard or uh, trying out aquaponics, maybe even fish farming in your basement or something like that. Anyway, uh, thank you, Ted, and thank you, Andrea, and thanks to everyone else who uh, wrote in. The email address, as I mentioned, is 40acrefool, 40acrefool at gmail.com. Until we talk again, be safe, have fun, live a little, learn a lot, and we'll see you here soon on another edition of 40 Acres and a Fool. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network.